0: Now let's read from God's word. We're going to read tonight from Galatians 5 verses 15 through 26, and with this we will conclude our series in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 verses 13 through 26. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty. As an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another this is the word of the Lord well tonight we're going to finish our series on the the effects of the Holy Spirit on a person the the fruit of the Holy Spirit and as we look at the the last part of the fruit we come to this last attribute it's self-control self-control how is your self-control as as i was preparing this message i thought about self control in my own life and i wondered am i am i a self controlled person a- am i self controlled maybe in some areas but in other areas i'm out of control and about uh, this this brought to mind how maybe about 10 years ago my metabolism slowed down and as a result i almost always feel full I rarely actually feel hungry, and it's strange. And as a result, I usually skip breakfast. I usually skip lunch, and I only eat dinner. And it's all fine. It's been like that for years now. Uh, But here's how it also plays out. After dinner, when I'm still full, maybe an hour or two after dinner and everything's already cleaned up, I will wander into the kitchen. I will wander into the pantry. I'll mindlessly look for something to eat. I'm not even hungry. But if I find something that's tasty, I might consume another meal's worth of food. And I'm wondering, as I'm doing it sometimes, why am I even eating now? I'm not hungry. And this is how it may play out plenty of nights every week. It's like like I'm a hobbit or something. Now, this is something that Probably needs to change. It hasn't been detrimental to my health, but it does feel a little bit out of control, like a lack of self control at some level. And if that needs to change, if that seemingly anodyne example needs to change, how should change look? What would change look like? How would I eliminate my unnecessary second dinner? What does the change process look like? Well, this. This little picture of my evening snacking, it may bring to mind areas where you lack self-control at a broader level. At a broader level, as we look at this attribute of self-control, what, what's the vision for the renewed humanity that God is working out in his people? How does How does self-control emerge in people who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit? And this is what we'll see in the ways of God's kingdom. We'll see that delight gets you further than discipline. Delight goes further than discipline. So, we're gonna look tonight at, The call to self-control. We're gonna look at the difficulty of self-control. And we're gonna look at the delight of self-control. The call to self-control. The difficulty of self-control. And the delight of self-control. Let's start with the call to self-control. Let's define it, let's define self-control. You can define it this way, self-control brings restraint to your emotions, your appetites, and your desires. Self-control brings restraint to your emotions, your appetites, and your desires. And this is something that all of us have. You can be a kid, you have emotions. You can be an adult, you have appetites and desires. Self-control brings restraint to those things. Self-control regulates the way you respond to your emotions and to your appetites and to your desires. Let's just talk about emotions, your emotions. Humans emote, humans emote. We experience sadness, we experience joy. We can have so much hope, it feels like we're floating on air and we can flood, absolutely flood with anger so that it's almost as if we're seeing red. Part of what makes us human is our emotions. And so they're there. Do you have self-control over your emotions? How you respond to your emotions? For example, when you feel angry, and we will feel angry, when you feel angry, do you act on it? Do you act on your anger? Or do you restrain your anger? Is it under control? The Bible's very clear about controlling Your response to your emotions. Not so much controlling your emotions so that you don't have emotions, but when you have emotions and they fire, do you have control over how you respond? For instance, do you have control over how you respond to to one emotion, anger? Ephesians 4, 26, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The emotion of anger may ignite inside you. Maybe someone cuts you off, cuts, cuts into your lane in traffic. It says, be angry. So you're angry, but you must restrain your actions. Be angry, it says, and do not sin. That means you may be angry, but you, you are not to express your anger by cursing the person, by making rude gestures at the person, by tailgating the person. You've got to control your your response to the anger. And it's saying, you can't stay angry. You must not remain in that angry state at that person. It says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And so you're not to be ranting and continuing to to prosecute that person the next day, the next morning, for weeks on end. Anger is a high-octane emotion. Of all the emotions, anger certainly has got a high possibility for explosion and for destruction. Proverbs 22, 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. How many relationships, how many relationships have been ruined because of words that were spoken in anger? How, how many relationships have been ended and they're done, they burned to the ground because of actions taken in anger. I suspect that if you live long enough, and most of you here have lived long enough, someone has spoken to you in anger. Someone in your past spoke to you in anger. And even if it was years ago, decades ago, you can't erase the memory of those angry words. That's how powerful anger and an angry response is. It, it can write something in permanent ink in your memory. And so, you must control the expression of your anger, especially if you're a Christian. James 1.19, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's another thing about our response to our emotions uh, and, and specifically this, this one, anger. We see that angry people, people who have no control over their emotions and especially angry ones, angry people are unsafe. Proverbs twenty two twenty four: Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man, do not go. People whose, whose emotions are in the driver's seat, their emotions are driving the car. They may be entertaining to watch, but you don't want to live with a person who's controlled by their emotions, especially anger. And, and it's not just, isn't it, isn't it the case that when a person is controlled by their emotions, when they don't have self-control, when the emotions are in control, isn't that lack of self-control, isn't that a mark of immaturity? That, that's exactly A mark of someone who's a two-year-old. What's a two-year-old like? How's a child? Toddlers are controlled by their emotions. They're not self-controlled. Their emotions control them. If they're happy, a toddler will burst out laughing. A a, a toddler will be giddy, running around. There's no inhibition. And if a toddler is sad, they'll howl, they'll cry, and it will just go on and on. And and if they're angry. If a toddler is angry, you see it on their face. You, you see it in the tantrum as they flail, as they kick the floor, as they strike people. In some ways, when our emotions control us, when we're not in control, but we're letting our emotions be in control, it's a sign of immaturity. immaturity. And that means you may be an adult, but you could still be an emotional toddler. And And... Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be impressive? Wouldn't it be something if your emotions didn't control you? You still have emotions, but they don't control you. They don't dictate what you say and what you do. That would be impressive. That, that really would be a form of freedom, wouldn't it? Proverbs sixteen thirty two: He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Another translation renders that verse this way. Patience is better than power and controlling one's emotions than capturing a city. It's more impressive if you can control your emotions than, than if, even if you could capture a whole city. That This effect of the Holy Spirit, self-control over your response to your emotions, wouldn't that be amazing if that's what came out in your life? And so self-control regulates your responses to your emotions. Now, here's another area of self-control. Self-control also regulates your responses to your appetites. Self-control also regulates your response to your appetites. Emotions are what you feel. Appetites are what you crave. Appetites are what you crave. We, we have cravings, and, and that's not bad. You have bodily cravings. You get hungry, and so you crave food. There's nothing wrong with that. You get thirsty, and so you crave drinking, hydration. You're a a human with a healthy body, and so you crave sex. You're a human who has social needs, and so you crave to be in a real relationship with people. By and large, all of those appetites, all of those those cravings, they're normal and they they evidence something healthy. Plenty of appetites are fine, an appetite for food, an appetite for sex, an appetite for relationship. In and of themselves, those appetites existed before sin. They're not inherently sinful. The craving for food, for sex, for relationship. These appetites existed in the good creation in Eden. They were actually desires for something good that God made in his good world. But good appetites can become lusts, and then they go wrong. When good appetites become lusts, then, then it's a problem. If I want, if I want a relationship so much that I'm willing to neglect my work, then my appetite for relationship it's become a lust if I want sexual satisfaction so much that I'm willing to steal it steal it from outside of marriage well then my my appetite for sexual satisfaction has become a lust so you see the difference there between an appetite which may be fine and a lust there are other appetites that must be controlled and not just food playing video games playing video games it's fine but not if it's out of control. Watching videos, that can be fine, but not if you binge on videos for 18 hours straight and then you end up unfit to meet your responsibilities the next day. Lusts can ruin your life. But today, we're told something that's very different. What we're broadly told today is, if you want it, if you desire it, it must be good. It must not be denied Your desires must not be denied you. But the Bible is clear that our desires, our appetites, they need to be controlled. They need to be restrained. They need to be guided by God's guidelines. We don't always want what is good. And even if the object of our desire is good, we may want too much. We may want too soon. Consider 1 Corinthians 7. Here Paul says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows... It is good for them if they remain even as I am. And Paul is saying abstaining from from sexual activity. It's good for them to remain as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, if they find that they cannot abstain from sexual activity, he says, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the, the the scriptures clearly instruct Christians to abstain from sexual activity until you're married. Paul, in in 1 Corinthians 9, he calls this a form of of self-discipline. He says, but I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So let's talk about pornography. Let's talk about pornography. Current studies say that pornography use in the broader world, it's the same in the church. There is virtually no difference. It's the same in the church and outside of the church. And that means, if the studies and the statistics are correct, that means about a quarter of you hearing this, about a quarter of you have viewed pornography within the last month. Women at a similar rate to men. And so this is an area that calls for self control. And it's an area that is not only an area of self-control, it's not only an area that involves morality, but it is an area that also involves addiction. Studies are also very clear that what is going on with pornography use turns into a physiological addiction. That is something where you need help. You will do well to to struggle with others, to not keep trying to fight against it solo, to ask for help. You're hardly alone in this, you're hardly alone. Over 30 years ago, in the infancy of the internet, I sat in an office with a computer and an internet connection, and it was too much. It was too much. I fell into temptation, and my wife knows. And to this day, I have never had a subscription to a streaming movie service, Netflix, whatever. Why? Is it because I'm so virtuous? No. It's because I know that I don't have enough self-control to have that kind of thing. I would easily fall into binging some movie series or whatever for 20 hours straight. I don't have the self-control, and I don't have the time for that. But it's not just about wasting time. It's not just about self-control. The temptation of watching what God calls unclean, I doubt I have the self-control to keep myself from beholding what God would say is evil and unclean. And so for me, for me, self-control means cutting off my right hand. Self-control means plucking out my eye. It means I just don't have those kind of subscriptions. We've looked at the call to self-control. Now let's look at the difficulty of self-control. Why? Why is it hard to exercise self-control? Why do our resolutions fail just as often as they seem to succeed? Well, for instance, you know, you know that you should control your words. You agree with what the Bible says in James chapter 3. You agree with this. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. See how great a forest a little fire burns, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. You know, and you agree with this, you know that you should control your mouth. You know that you should hold your tongue when the conversation starts to get heated and, and, and your, your body is starting to get amped up. You know you should control your words and that, that any insults that you make, any attacks that you deliver, you're only going to regret it. It will only do damage. And, and you know and you agree that you should not speak evil of one another, as the Bible says, that gossip should have no place. Why is it? Why is it so hard to control our tongues? Why is it so hard to exercise self-control. We even know that some of these actions, as we do it, they're not high risk. They're high damage. We know that some actions bring nothing but death. Slavery to alcohol. There's not a risk. It is killing you. Slavery to substance abuse. Slavery to gambling. We know that those things only destroy our health, destroy our minds, destroy our families. But even then, why is it so hard? to quit, to control ourselves? The answer, ultimately, in addition to whatever's going on with the physiology and and addiction, ultimately, in addition, underneath all that, the answer is theological. It's because of sin, and it's because of the flesh. Those are two theological terms, sin and the flesh. They diagnose the root underneath all of that. What is sin? What is sin? Sin is rejection, rejection, And sin is also rebellion. It's rejection and it is rebellion. Sin's rejection. Sin is rejection of the person of God. And sin is also rebellion. Sin is rebellion against the commands of God. Rejection of God's person. Rebellion against his commands. Sin is saying, I will not have God be my God. I don't like him. I don't like what he's done. I reject his claims. And I will not obey his directions. So sin is both rejection and rebellion. We did that. We did that in the garden all of us when when at the beginning in a good and in a perfect world Adam and Eve they rejected God and they rebelled against his one commandment and at that moment all of humanity the bottom dropped out and all of us fell and we all received an internal disposition against God. And that's, that's what you could call the flesh, that theological term, that's the flesh. We have an internal disposition against God. And now all humanity has this fallen human nature which rejects God and rebels against God. And that means you could be the most virtuous volunteer in this whole Tidewater region. You could get a citizen's award from the mayor's but you still have the flesh. You still have the fallen, sinful nature inherited from Adam. And everything you're doing, it either falls short or it's tainted. It's incomplete. There's some sub-motive that is against God, that's rejecting God. And if you're a Christian, you still have the flesh. It's the remaining sin. It's the remaining flesh, the remnants of it. But you, you do have that. And, and this is the difference, and this is, this is, Very important as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. You have the remaining flesh, but you also have the Spirit of God resident inside you. And so you can think of it this way. Children, think of it this way. When you become a Christian, think of a house. Think of your life as being a house. When you become a Christian, God comes into you and he turns on all the lights in the house and he cleans up all of the mess that was in there and he sets up a home. And God comes to dwell inside you. And when sin tries to walk in through your living room, the new person that's living in you, the Lord God, by his spirit, he will see sin coming into the house, walking into the house, and the new person will say to the sin, hey, you can't be here. You have to leave now. But sometimes when you struggle with sin, maybe whatever the sin is, You're struggling with it. Maybe the sin is coveting. You're you're coveting someone else's good looks. Or or maybe the the sin is coveting someone else's girlfriend, whatever. And when you struggle with that sin, it's not easy. It's difficult. It frustrates you. And and maybe it also confuses you, and you're wondering, what is going on? Why is this so hard? Why am I facing this over and over? Listen to how Paul describes the struggle against sin and against the flesh in a believer, against the new life, the struggle against the new life of the spirit that's in you if you're a believer. Romans 7, verse 15, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, I do. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, That I practice. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. The struggle against sin, self-control, it's difficult. It is difficult. Why? What the picture here is this. It's difficult because self-control requires strangulation. Self-controls requires strangling sin. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is why self-control in part is so difficult because you're not merely changing a bad habit. You're trying to kill something. You're trying to kill sin. Killing is hard. War is heavy. I I remember once I wasn't trying to kill a rat, but I had trapped a rat and it was on the other hand of this thing that was holding it and I could feel the claws of the rat clawing to their trying to get away from me as I was holding on to the trap that had it and it was a living struggle. It was hard. It was hard. I remember another time there was a rat that was, was trapped. We had to get rid of it. It was large. I didn't know what to do with it. It, it would be cruel to let it go because it was maimed. But it would be, I, I couldn't just throw it in the dumpster. It is hard to kill a living thing. You're killing sin. And this brings us to another theological, theological explanation for, for why self-control is so different, difficult. It's difficult because you're trying to kill sin, and it's trying to kill you. But there's another reason why it's difficult. It's because there's a paradox built into all of this. There's the paradox of sanctification. Sanctification is it's the process that begins when a person becomes a Christian, God has saved you, he's forgiven you, He has justified you. He's declared that you're forgiven on the day that you repent and the day that you believe on Jesus Christ. And from that day until heaven that's your sanctification. You've begun that process where slowly but surely God is changing you. More and more the sort of catechism says more and more you die unto sin and you live unto righteousness. More and more More and more you become like Jesus Christ in your motives, in your words, in your deeds. Something about you is increasingly resembling Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. The the wonderful reform doctrine of sanctification. But here's the paradox that's baked into it. And this is why, this is another reason why self-control is so difficult. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. And sanctification is your work. It's the work of the Spirit, and it is your work. Listen to Philippians two twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, in my absence, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. He's saying you do the work with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and and to do for his good pleasure. He says, you work it out, and he also says, God does the work. And that's a paradox. God does the work, you also must do the work. And that means you don't coast. If you're trying to wrestle with self-control over your lust, over your temper, it means you don't coast. You fight it. But it also means that you know that God has got to work because you're weak, because you're not enough for this. If his spirit does not work in you, the war's over. It's hopeless, but it's not hopeless. No matter how poorly you did last week, no matter how poor your showing was with your sin struggle, no matter how many times you sinned that same sin again and again, God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And so this is, the, this, is the, this is part of the difficulty. This is the paradox. If you find that you have become overly complacent, overly toler, tolerant with your own sin, you need to wake up. You need to take up the work. But this also means if you are demoralized and depressed about your sin, you've, you need to believe and to hope that the Spirit is at work and is mighty. He can change you. He can overcome your sin. And you need to lean on that. You need to be certain that the God of peace is making you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story about someone. We'll call him Jan. Jan is a friend, Uh, he was very accomplished, he um, was very intelligent. Jan came to me one day and said, can I talk to you? And so I said, sure, let's talk. And he said, from the time I was a young man, I struggled. I struggled with sexual purity. I struggled with pornography and everything that comes with that, I struggled. And it went on for so long that I have given up. And I just thought, this is just how it's going to be. But I heard of a friend of mine who was in the same weeds and suffered the same failures over and over and over. And he finally tried to step into the light and tried to bring into his struggle other Christians. And he revealed his struggle. And he asked for help, he asked for prayer and something started to change and 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 freedom started to to break out in his life and and some steps of victory tangible victory and change started to take place and when i heard that jan said i suddenly had hope hope that i'm not stuck and so i'm coming to you he said i need help i need help and so the lord did a work in jan and jan got back into battle, and Jan came to see the power of the Lord, give him real help and real continuation and growth in change and in victory. This brings us to the last thing, the delight of self-control. And what we want to know and, and have very firmly in our minds is this. Delight takes you further than self-discipline delight takes you further than self-discipline. How are you going to get this under control? Whatever area of self-control that you wrestle with, how, how are you going to get this under control? How, how should you exert self-discipline? Well, you do need to do the work and, and keep doing the work. But I can tell you that, let's say we're talking about this, this area of pornography I can tell you that bringing things that are good, like accountability, like bringing filters and all that stuff, those are all good and probably necessary, but it's not enough. You should do those things, but it's not enough. That will not cure the internal obsession, the internal appetite and desires that are firing, the, the, the devotion in your head and in your heart. It's, it's still there on the wishing and wanting and daydreaming about whatever it is. Whether it's something you're spending on, or spending yourself on, or you're just you're fixated on, it doesn't deal with that. Discipline only takes you so far. But I tell you, delight, delight takes you much further than self-discipline. And you've got to find the delight in self-control. Discipline's good, delight will make it sweet. There's got to be a sweetness in this. Where do you find this kind of sweetness? Where do you find this, this delight in self-control. It's when you see Jesus in the gospel. The doctrine of Christ tells us that Jesus possessed a full human nature and and body. And and with that full human nature what that means is that Jesus experienced all of the same emotions and all of the same appetites and desires that we experience, those things, the appetites and the desires and emotions that push against self-control, he experienced all of those things. Jesus had the full range of all emotions. Jesus had the full range of desire and appetites. Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, but he responded to every emotion with self-control. Jesus responded to every appetite and every craving with self-control without sin, You see this in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, right? Luke 4, he was hungry, it says. He was hungry. But Jesus, though he was hungry, Jesus went hungry so that you could be filled. Jesus was tempted for you and Jesus succeeded for you. Look at the self-control of Jesus in his crucifixion. Jesus knew that he was about to face searing, agony, physical agony, emotional agony everything in his humanity everything would have wanted to avoid it would have wanted to numb it would have wanted to dull the pain before they nailed him through his hands and through his feet they offered him a drink laced with myrrh it was a crude narcotic but in the ultimate act of self-control Jesus took the pain Without the anesthesia, in the ultimate act of his self control, Jesus denied himself relief so that you could know the comfort of God. Jesus denied himself life so that you could live forever. And so, would it kill you to deny your desires? Wouldn't it feel good to enter? into one more, one more way, one more small step into the image of Christ by denying your desires, wouldn't that be significant to you? Wouldn't that be significant to God? Well, there's one more thing as we close. Maybe you are someone, maybe you are someone who already exhibits significant amounts of self-control. Maybe you're someone who has significant amounts of self-discipline, and that's great, Generally speaking, your life, your habits, your spending, they all show admirable self-control model. But isn't it also true, and this is maybe the danger in it, isn't it true sometimes that people with, with self-control are hard on people who lack self-control? Think of how the eldest son in that parable resented the youngest son who had squandered the family fortune he had no love for the man, his brother. Sometimes with people, people with self-control are hard on people who lack self-control. Jesus is full of self-control. Jesus is full of self-control. But he's not the kind of person who resents those who lack self-control. He sympathizes. Jesus suffered to the depths. And so Jesus can fully sympathize with every pain, every emotion, every unmet longing of your heart. It happened to Jesus too and so he knows and he's not hard on those who struggle to control themselves Jesus says come to me all you who weary who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light come to him let's pray Lord some of us come and we lack self-control and we've lost hope we are weary give us hope again convince us, Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit is real and it's real and capable enough to change us, and that we can stand again. And Lord, for those who are complacent with sin, and who just don't care, shake us up, wake us up, Lord, alarm us if that's what's needed, and make us eager and willing to come back to you, and to, to fight against sin, to, to be intolerant of the sin that still remains in our hearts, in our homes. And would you, Lord, would you, Lord, encourage us and give us that beautiful vision of Jesus Christ, the perfect one, perfect in love, perfect in righteousness, and would you convince us that we're becoming just like him by the power of your spirit, and you will make it so, and it will be perfected one day. We thank you for this great hope, and we acknowledge it in Jesus' name. Amen.